Well, Merry Christmas to you. Welcome to Crossroads Church. Man, it's so good to be here today as we celebrate uh, singing Christmas hymns and looking at the Christmas story and really just celebrating who we are as Christians and the excitement that comes uh, with this season. And not only do we, you know, come together and, and you know, gather around that reality, but also the reality that, that we believe that we, you belong here, that we belong here, that God, this God that we sing about knows our names and knows who we are and has a plan for our lives and that each and every one of us, that we, that we belong uh, in a place to uh, be able to worship this amazing, amazing God. And so if you're new with us today, I want to say welcome to you. Uh, it's so good to have you here. If we have not had the privilege of meeting, my name is Matt Manning. I'm the senior pastor here at Crossroads Church. And today, at any point, really, uh, you can use our text number, that number is 720-513-1933. And if you text the word new, uh, that just lets us know that you're here today. And if you have any questions, uh, that's the way to get your questions answered. Whether we know the answer, or we just make it up. But either way, you'll have an answer, all right, today. And so, so, uh, yeah, if you're new, I just encourage you uh, to let us know that you're here so that we can help you get connected here at Crossroads Church. Well, Christmas is one week away, and uh, how many of you kind of show of hands, how many of you grew up uh, when you were kids where your family had like a countdown to Christmas, like you had some way of counting down uh, to Christmas? Yeah, pretty a lot of you, yeah. In my family, we did. We had an advent calendar. I'm not sure where my mom got this, but it was this like old wooden calendar that she would hang up on the wall every December. And it counted down from December 1st to the 25th. And it was like these little wooden tiles that would slide in. And on the front were the dates, you know, one, two, three, four. And then on the back were these like icons of something meaningful for Christmas or Advent or the Bible. And so every, you know, morning us kids, we'd wake up and we'd run down the stairs. And it was always this like competition, you know, like elbows throwing, wrestling matches happened to see who got to turn over the tile, you know. And it was like the closer that we got, like the more excitement that happened. There was just this, this excitement, anticipation as we flipped over those tiles each and every day, we were just one step closer to Christmas. There's such wonder, isn't there? When, it's, when we were children, there's such wonder in the anticipation of Christmas. And then we become adults. And you come to like a church service like today and you hear someone like me say, hey, we're one week away. And the adults go, oh, no, 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 no. And the kids are like, yes, yes, yes. Right? The adults are like, it's coming too fast. And the kids are like, it's not coming fast enough. And, and regardless of where you're at today in the waiting, in the great waiting of, of the Christmas season, there is a certainty to Christmas, isn't there? Like it will always get here. Like the 25th is coming and it will arrive. Like there is a promise to the certainty of Christmas. Well, while we're at it, as we're talking about kids, just a little confession time in church. You can raise your hand. Um, there's something else that we did as kids. How many of you, how many of you um, actually like searched for uh, the presents that your parents got you that they hid? How, yeah, just raise your hand high. Yeah, yeah, just feel good. Let that off. Okay. Uh, how many of you, how many of you um, actually found them? Raise your, oh yeah, good. Okay, okay. Here's the last one. This was the big one. All right. How many of you actually played with them once you found them? All right. I see you in the back few right here. Oh, that's great. Yeah. The weight was just too much. Like we just had to get to it. Well, we are in the great weight of Christmas. Like I said, we're a week away. And when it comes to Advent, Advent is the season of waiting. And here at Crossroads, we decided that we were going to use this waiting as a way to really like ready ourselves for Christmas and not just like in the material sense, you know, getting the tree ready and putting the decorations and getting the presents. Well, all that is like super good and super fun to be a part of, but really to ready ourselves or to prepare our heart for the Christmas that is to come. And we decided that the way that we were going to go about doing that is actually by walking the road back to the very first Christmas and looking and reminding ourselves of what made it so special, the anticipation that came with it, to remind ourselves why 
why it is that we celebrate and why these words like hope and, and love and joy and peace mean, mean such, such a big deal to us. And so if you've been with us for the last couple of weeks, we've been kind of taking this slow journey um, to get to the story, like the story, right? Like if you've been in, in church your entire life, like every year you hear the story. And even if this is your first time ever in church, you know the story because we all watched it on the Charlie Brown Christmas special, right? Like, like we all know the story. And the story is told to us in Luke chapter 2. And so if you have your Bible or a Bible app, I encourage you to join with me there. But the story begins not with, not with fiction. The story is, is not fiction. It, it's not, it does not begin with, you know, a time, a tell as old as time, or once upon a time, or in a galaxy far, far away. The story begins with a man who claims to be God, but as we're about to find out, his name isn't Jesus. The story begins for us in Luke chapter 2, starting in verse 1. It says, In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria, and all went to be registered, each to his own town. The story begins with a young boy named, uh, a, young, um, a young boy named Octavius. He was named after his father, and unfortunately for him, at the age of four, his father passed away, and he was sent to live with and be raised by his grandmother, who just happened to be the sister of the great and famous Julius Caesar. For Octavius, he grew up in the palace, and his life only knew that of the power and the riches and the fame that, became, that came with being a part of the royal family of Julius Caesar. For Octavius, all that he ever wanted was to actually be like his great uncle, to be just like him. And Julius Caesar, through the years, began to grow very fond of this young boy, not just because his father like passed away at an early age, but because Julius didn't actually have any sons or any sons worth anything to him. And as Octavius ran around the palace and played outside, Julius could see something in this kid. He saw that he had this curiosity when it came to learning, that he had this great intellect, that he had these people skills uh, that were just far above and exceeded other kids his age, that these were all great qualities that would one day make a great Caesar. And all Octavius actually wanted in life was to be like Uncle Julius. And so those teenage years come along, and almost immediately, Octavius began to show this immense capacity for the things of war and for the things of battle. And in his teenage years, he was actually invited to, to be a part of, of, the, of the crusade, to be a part of, of the war that was going on. And yet, right before the troops left, Octavius became gravely ill. The troops left without him, and as he healed in his home, he, he got up and he said, this battle's not happening without me. And so he got a group of buddies together. They rowed in a small ship across the Mediterranean Sea, shipwrecked on the wrong side of the enemy lines. And only because of their cunningness and their deceit were they able to make it to the front lines and eventually to Julius Caesar's tent reporting for Judy. Obviously, Uncle Julius took notice. From there, Octavius, in his late teens, began to climb the Roman government and the roles that were given to him. And at age 19, Julius Caesar declared that Octavius would not only be the heir to his riches, but also succeed him as the next Caesar in Rome. In a, in a twisted moment of fate, that same year, Julius Caesar was assassinated by the Senate. And almost immediately, Octavius found himself in a power struggle in Rome. Two other people rose, and, and for the course of the next several years, the kingdom was split. 
war and violence was happening everywhere all over the kingdom in those dark, dark ages. Eventually, Octavius, Octavius battles and crushes his main opponent, Marcus Anthony, and Cleopatra in the Battle of Antium. As the victor, Octavius is now the sole ruler of Rome. Every great Caesar has a great name, and Caesar Octavius just didn't sound right to the young man's ear. And so one day he declared before the Senate that his name would be Caesar Augustus. The Senate was shocked and appalled. See, Augustus is Latin, and what it means is the holy or, or the revered or the majestic. It was reserved for the gods. Upon hearing that, Octavius goes, that's the one I like. That's the one for me. And from that point forward, Rome is no longer a republic ruled by the people, but an empire ruled by an emperor who fancies himself as God. And as the emperor of the known world, he, he wields un, unfathomable power. And as Caesar, just by his very word, can get the whole world to move. And so the Christmas story begins with that power as the Augustus, the God of Rome, wants to count his children. And with a snap of the fingers, the whole world moves, verse 4. And Joseph also went up to Galilee from the town of Nazareth to Judea to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was one of the house and lineage of David to be registered with his wife, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth, and she gave birth to the firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. As one man is claiming dominion over, one, over mankind, as, as one man is claiming not just to be Caesar but Augustus, not just some ruler but God, snapping his fingers to move the entire world behind the scenes, the true God goes, I can use that. See, there's a prophecy in the Old Testament, a little known prophecy in the Old Testament. We find it in Micah chapter five, verse two. Let me read it for you. It goes like this. But you, O Bethlehem, Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth from me one who is to be ruler in Israel whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient of days. For many of us who, who know the story, we realize that this is a messianic prophecy where God says that I'm going to send a ruler who has always been and who will always be, and he's not going to be born in some palace in Rome, but rather in the little town of Bethlehem. Now, for those of us who know the story, there's a problem here because the reality is, is that the angel Gabriel came to this young woman named Mary and said, Mary, you are the one who is chosen, that you are the one who is blessed, that you are the woman above every woman, that you are going to give birth to this Messiah, the Savior, who is ultimately going to come and rescue this entire world. Like the entire world, all of creation has been waiting in anticipation for this one that has been promised. And Mary, you're going to be the one who delivers him. Like it's this moment of, of just like amazingness in the Christmas story, and yet we realize that Mary is at this point living with her family and her fiance's family in a town called Nazareth about 80 miles north of Bethlehem. And as this one man sitting on the throne who says, call me God and go be counted, God Almighty says, we can use that man, you're just fulfilling my prophecies. And so Joseph and Mary does as Caesar commands. 
And they walk the journey back to, to Joseph's hometown of Bethlehem. And there the baby Jesus, the Messiah, the Savior, the King, the ruler, not the one who just proclaims to be God, but the one who is actually God is born. And all of creation, all of the anticipation of creation is finally relieved. The wait is over. Christmas has come. And I'm telling you, if you only viewed the Christmas story through those eyes, how wide open your world would be to see how special this well-known story actually is. It goes on, verse 8, and in that same region at the same time, there were shepherds out in the field keeping watch over their flocks by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone all around them. And they were filled with great fear, and the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you that you will find a baby wrapped in swaddling clothes and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was an angel, with the angel a multitude of heavenly hosts praising God and saying, singing glory to God in the highest. And on earth peace among those with whom he is well pleased. In an astonishing twist to the Christmas story, we find that this king is born. And this announcement of the king is not made to the elites sitting in Rome, in the palaces of Rome, but rather to a couple of shepherds sitting out in the field. And with this delivery, this, this announcement of this king being born is this promise of peace that will come onto the earth. And if we honestly look, I mean, if we honestly look at the history from the day in which we're living in right now all the way back to that very first Christmas and all the things that have been experienced, we realize that there's something missing, isn't there? That there's something missing, that there's a part of, of this story, that there's a prophecy made in this story that doesn't feel like it's, like it's come to fruition yet. Like, like there's something missing in it, and, and the thing that was missing is peace. This thing in this world that we try so hard to grab a hold of, but very rarely can we, can we hold on to very, very long. The reality is, is that we look around the world, and, and there's something that just seems to be off, like this isn't the way that it ought to be. That you've probably even echoed those words a time or two in your own life. The moment that you realize that something is wrong, that something is missing, that this isn't the way that it should be. From the regrets of a life of, of might have been's to the misery that we just experience in this world. The third world child who dies largely from a preventable disease. The first world child who's born as an addict because of what his or her mother introduced to them in the womb. You have accidents where somebody who needed to, to pay attention in order to keep other people safe became either preoccupied because they were, because they were drunk or careless or, or whatever. You have natural disasters like tornadoes and earthquakes, floods, shark attacks, hurricanes. You have what we do to each other as people with genocides and war. That we travel down the road of this life, we travel down history and we realize pretty quickly that something is, something is missing. That we live out the story of our lives and we go, it, it ought to be different. It ought to look different. It ought to feel different. This isn't the way that it's supposed to go. I mean, it says right there that Jesus is going to be born. Glory to God in the highest. Peace on earth. It doesn't feel like peace is on the earth. Jesus, you were, you were the one who was supposed to bring peace. 
later on in Jesus' life, there's this pivotal moment, one of the most pivotal moments in all of Scripture when Jesus stares into the souls of his disciples, and he says this to them in John chapter 14. He says this, Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. And there's something in every single one of us that as we, as we go through the Christmas stories, we sing the songs, we go, Jesus, Jesus, I, I don't see the peace. I don't, I don't feel the peace. Glory to God in the highest. Peace on earth. Where is it? Where is it? And so when we read the Christmas story, we come to one of two conclusions. Either, you know, it's wrong, but we look at it and we go, there's too many things right in the story. There's too much history in the story for it to be wrong. We must not understand something. We must not see something that we're supposed to see here. And the reason, the reason that we don't understand the peace, the way that Jesus thought about peace is because we see it much differently. See, when it comes to our word peace, we get our understanding of peace from the Roman culture. In the Latin, the word for peace is the word pax. It's the word pax. And the word pax means freedom uh, from disturbances. It means quiet and tranquility. For, For us as Americans, this is the way that we think about peace that we are free from tension in my, in my relationships with others. When countries are not in tension with one another, we say that those countries are at peace. Now, this word Pax flowed from the Caesars. And in Roman culture, this was, this was contractual language where peace between you and I is based on deeds. And at any moment, it could be taken away if you did not live up to your end of the bargain. This is, this is what the Caesars, like Augustus, instituted. As long as you are willing to do what your Augustus, your God of Rome, requires of you, then there will be peace. And everybody knew in the time of Augustus, this man who proclaimed to be God, what would happen if you violated pacts that the Roman armies would move in and they had no problems putting down, you know, totally destroying and annihilating entire villages, if not cities, in order to restore pacts. Those who violated pacts oftentimes ended up dead. Relationally today, some 2,000 years later, this is how every single one of us understands peace in our culture. That as long as you live up to what I expect, then there will be peace between us. And yet when the choir of angels shows up and when Jesus looks out at his disciples staring into their souls and said, this is the peace of God, this is not the understanding of Pax. They're not leaning on the Roman understanding of, of Pax. The regrets, the miseries, the evil events that happen in this life, the, the way things ought to be, something is missing and that something that is missing, the Bible has a word for it and the word is shalom. Now, at its very basic level, and the way that we see it translated throughout all of the Old Testament is by the word peace, but it means so much more than that. The shalom is the wholeness, it's the completeness, it's the flourishing of all of God's creation. In one word, the Hebrew understanding summarizes, it completely summarizes God's original design for all of creation. The shalom is the way that things, the way that things were meant to be. See, when the angels sing, when Jesus said, peace be with you, he did not just mean civic 
peace or, or a peace of mind, but rather he's hearkening back to the biblical idea of shalom. That in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And as God is, is creating the world, he's creating it as a fabric that is woven together, completely interdependent, completely interdependent. Let's say for a moment that this thread is your life. And as you live your life as Americans, oftentimes the way that we think is that we can go about and we can do whatever we want, that we can act however we want, that every decision that we make, that we can do it however that we want, that it doesn't affect any other lives, it doesn't affect any other thread here, that we're completely, we're completely independent to do as we wish without hurting or affecting anybody else. That independence as Americans is one of our core values for who we are as a culture. That oftentimes when I say when it comes to Colorado, we have three gods. We have the God of independence, recreation, and the Broncos. That's who we worship, right? That as Americans, we so value our independence. And yet if I was to take this thread and I was to throw it on the ground and I was to pile a thousand other threads on top of it, what I would have is not some woven tapestry. I would just have a thousand threads, threads piled upon one another. But if I took this thread and, and started to bring other threads with it and I begin to, to weave them together, connecting them, bringing them in and over and around each other, eventually I would have something like this, a hand-knitted wool beanie, something that is beautiful and, and strong, something that is, that is warm, something that could be, something that could be used. The more interwoven the thread becomes, the more, beautiful, the more beautiful the peace becomes. This is the picture of shalom, a, a webbing of interdependence, of wholeness, of, of harmony between God, between people, and between the creation. See, we, we translate shalom as peace but it means far more than peace of mind or a ceasefire between enemies. In the Bible, shalom means wholeness. It means, it means completeness. It, it means the, the, the universal flourishing of God. It's the delight that comes where, where needs are met and gifts are deployed faithfully. And as we deploy those gifts, there's a, there's a joy that fills us in the wonder of our creator, our king, our Messiah, our savior, the one who doesn't just proclaim to be God, but the one who is God, who then opens the doors and, and welcomes home those in whom he delights, that shalom, in other words, is the way that things ought to be. And so we look at this, this Hebrew understanding of, of peace and we go, where is it? Like, why don't I experience it? Like, I look around the world, I look at the history of the world, and, and it's not there. Like, like, how do we get a hold of it? Where do we, where do we find it? What happened? And the reality is, is what happened is Genesis chapter 3. That when sin entered into the world, it opened the door for death and, and all of his allies. And at that moment, shalom is vandalized. That Adam and Eve, they break shalom when they eat from the tree of, of good and evil. At that moment, at that moment, shalom is vandalized. And from then on, sin and pain and maybe even worse, the selfishness of people come to rule the creation. Natural disasters beginning plaguing the world. After the fall, Adam and Eve, they hear God wandering through the garden. And instead of running to him, they run away from him. The threads are broke. Shalom is vandalized. And for the rest of the Bible, 
From Genesis chapter 3 to the end of Revelation, God is working to bring back the shalom order. Enter in the Christmas story. That through Jesus, God desires to restore the shalom relationships and the shalom rhythms of this world. And so the question then becomes for us, well, how do we find it? If it's right there, if this is what God desires, how do we find it? Well, the psalmist in Psalm 34 gives us a hint when he writes these words. He says, turn away from evil and do what is good. Seek peace and pursue it. If the reality is, is that we live in a fallen world, then we can't just simply wait for shalom to come upon us. We can't just wait to, to receive shalom. That's not the way that it works. In fact, that Jesus gets to the heart of this. He gets to the heart of this in John chapter 1. Let me show it to you. In John chapter 1, he's, he's with his disciples, or he's, he's walking through the cities. And the next day, again, John, this is John the Baptist. This is his cousin. This is who we've been looking about the last couple of weeks, was standing with two of his disciples. And he looked at Jesus as he walked by, and he said, Behold the Lamb of God. Not the one just proclaiming to be God, but the one who is God. He's in our midst. He's walking with us. And the two disciples heard him say this. And they followed Jesus. And Jesus turned, and he, and he saw that they were following him. And he said, what are you seeking? It's so curious that the first thing that Jesus tells these guys or asks of these guys is the question, what are you seeking? In other words, what is it that you want? It's not a question of belief, but one of desire. It's not a question of like thought or, or duty, but a question of, of what do you love? Like, what do you, what do you go after in this world? And what Jesus is pointing to here with these two disciples, what he's pointing to is the heart of understanding shalom. That in asking this question, Jesus is pointing to the core of, of who we are. That I am what I desire. That I am what I love. That it's the way that you were created to be. That you were created with a heart that you cannot not love. That we were not designed to not love. We are what we love. And so the question as we prepare our hearts for Christmas, as we ready ourselves for Christmas in just one week from now, is this question is that when you showed up today, when you showed up today to celebrate Christmas here, what is it that you're seeking? What is it that you desire? What is it that you want? See, the, the way that you begin to answer that begins to reveal what's going on in your hearts. That the angels show up in the Christmas story and they say, glory to God in the highest, peace on earth to man. Now, in our culture, in our culture, we tend to try to separate those things out. That we keep glory over here and peace over here. And the reality is, is as we separate those out, that we'll ever, never ever actually experience shalom. That you can't have shalom, you can't have peace outside of God. That you, that you have to keep these two together. See, the most basic need, the most basic need that we have as humans is peace with God. That this is foundation to the pursuit of peace. If we don't go here first, then any peace that we experience is only temporal at best. It's fleeting. It, it's, just, it just, it's just superficial. That when we call out to Jesus as our Savior... Our sins are forgiven. Relationship is restored. When we look out and we answer the question, the thing that I seek most is God's glory, then we find peace. 
That when, when the highest glory of our lives, the greatest desire, the love of our life is to bring glory to God, then peace is what comes with that. And once we begin to experience the peace of God in our lives, that we know for certain that we're at peace with God, then we begin to have peace with ourselves. Listen, every single one of us, at some point or another in our lives, have woken up in the dead of night. We've looked up at the dark ceiling and we've asked the question, God, are you and me, are we okay? Are we good? Like, like have I done enough to one day be with you in heaven and to experience all this? Like, like, like are we good? And that whole question is, is so sad. It's so sad because unfortunately for most of us, this is where we get mixed up, so mixed up because it's so easy for us to f- default to packs. That it's, that it's all based, that it's all based on our performance about what we've done and do we measure up. In that way, we're all very good Roman thinkers. But there can be peace with yourself because God says, look, your peace doesn't come from your performance. Your peace doesn't come from living up. In fact, you cannot live up. You cannot live up to the standard. It's why you need a savior. One of my favorite quotes in all the world is you don't need a savior because you're probably gonna die tonight. You're gonna need a savior because you're probably gonna live tomorrow. Like the reality is, is that's why we need a savior. It's not based on your performance. You you can't live up to the standard that only through Jesus and what he did on the cross can we find peace in ourselves because it's not about what I've done, but everything about what Jesus has done for me. And if I have peace with God, and I can start to feel the peace that I can have with myself, then that leads me to the peace that I can have with others. Because I begin to realize that this God of the universe, this amazing creator, this this king that was sent as a baby to be born in the little town of Bethlehem, that despite the things that I've done in this life, despite the harm that I've caused him, despite the way that I live my life and the way that it ought not be, that time and time again that he has shown me forgiveness, that he has shown me grace and mercy. And now as one of his, as a children of his and living in peace, that now I am the vehicle that brings that peace into other people's lives. Because let's be real, in the next week you're gonna find yourself in some awkward conversations that you don't wanna be with with family members that you wish you weren't with right? And in those moments, in those moments, you're going to be thinking to yourself, how do I get out of this? Like, I don't even want to talk to you. And hopefully in that moment, God will remind you that you can experience even shalom here, that you can be the vehicle of shalom. How do you show them the grace and the mercy and the forgiveness that your God has already shown you? See, there's such amazement when we realize who our amazing God is. I mean, I'm just amazed that I, have, that I have peace with God. And it's through this sense of amazement that I, a sinner, that I, a sinner, can actually experience shalom. And in that, it makes my heart tender. It, it leads me to forgiveness. It makes me kind. And in doing that, I, I want to extend that to others. See, it's in that moment that we truly start to understand what the angels were singing about at Jesus' birth, the shalom that came on Christmas Day. See, for some of you, you've probably never ever experienced that peace that you maybe today showed up and you didn't even know that a relationship with the God of peace was even possible. You didn't realize how much the God 
of peace actually cared for you, that he was willing to send his son into this earth to die on a cross so that you might have life with him forever and experience peace with him where your relationship was restored and shalom was in order. And as I say that, I realize that for many of us in this room, that this probably isn't a salvation issue, that we don't experience the peace in our lives because we've just lost sight of what we truly want. That we've tried to live our lives with with other loves that are outside of God. That that at some point we got a little sideways and God is no longer, you know, our desire is no longer to see God glorified. It's, It's maybe to see ourselves glorified or our family glorified or our jobs glorified or whatever glory you want to bring in the world. But that we've gotten to that point and we've just gotten a little sideways. And because of that, we're not experiencing peace in our life. And God says, it's not too late. It's not, it's not too late. Today, you can simply realign your desires. You can choose to make God's glory your highest love, and in doing so, you will find rest for your restless soul. So my question is, what did you come in seeking today? What is the thing that you desire more than anything else in this world? Because if you want to experience peace, the answer to that question, his name is Jesus. Will you pray with me, Father? Lord, we come to the story that is so well known for so many of us. Lord, in fact, for many of us, we could probably recite this entire story without even opening the Bible, whether we've ever been in church or not. And yet, Lord, there's parts of the story that are so unknown to us. And so, Father, today I pray, Lord, that we, as we look at the story of a man who wanted to be God and the man who was born God, Lord, I pray that that would impact our lives. Lord, so easily we can see the kingdoms of this world and the way that it gets twisted and how we even twist up the own, our own kingdoms, that we lose sight of, of what's really important what we should truly seek. And so today, Lord, I pray. I pray for every single one of us, Lord, that as we prepare our hearts for this Christmas, that we would do so seeking shalom, that we would do so seeking seeking you, that your glory would be our highest desire, would be our greatest love. And having experienced true peace with you, that that peace would would radiate in our own lives. And as we come to enjoy the peace that we find within ourselves, that we would extend that peace to others. And in doing so, Lord, we'd see a world, a world that knows peace. God, I pray that your blessing would be upon us this week as we look forward to the day of celebration with Christmas. It's in Jesus' name that I pray. Amen. If today you want to have a conversation, maybe you're in that place of of needing to talk to someone about what it looks like to be in a relationship with Jesus, to experience the God of peace, shalom in your life, we'd love to have that conversation. You can simply text the name Jesus to our text number, 720-513-1933. Today as a church, we come to communion. 
And I just want to give you a moment. I just want to give you a moment of quiet to contemplate the cost of shalom in your life, the cost of, of making and restoring your relationship with God, with yourself, and with others. And so just take a quiet moment before we eat together. Today we celebrate because the shalom that we have came in a baby born in a manger who died on a cross so that we could be at rest with God. And so today we eat and we celebrate. And we drink from the cup knowing that it's through Jesus's blood that we experience life and we have it everlasting. We don't have to wonder anymore if God and, God and me for good we are because of the cross of Jesus, and so we drink together. In our worship, we're gonna continue and we're gonna sing some familiar Christmas hymns. We're gonna lift our voices to Jesus. I'm gonna invite you in house to go ahead and stand. If you need prayer at any moment over the next 20 minutes or so, you can make your way to the banner. We'll have people to pray there online. You can click the button, but let's sing today to our Lord and Savior, Jesus.